welcome to the latest bonus episode of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, strategies, and streamers in modern and pioneer. My name is Stan here in Chicago. With me as usual, it's Dave Harberger. Hey, everybody. Excited to talk about One Drops with Haste and One Drops without Haste on this episode. <laughs> also, this week, we have a very special guest. We're lucky to join our show, a man who probably needs no introduction, but I'll introduce him anyway. <laughs> you may know him from Twitch, also a fixture on Star City Games. It's the one and only Ryan Overturf. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Hey, Ryan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's really very excited. nice to chat with you. Yeah, I mean, we're talking prowess, so I, I got a lot to say. <laughs> well, I think it's it's interesting because Stan and I have both talked about the deck a lot, and certainly I've piloted it at a, a few events very badly, so I can't wait to talk to somebody who's actually good at playing it. And uh, it's just a deck that for some reason has a, a warm spot in my heart. Yeah, there's a little something for everybody. It's the kind of deck that the entry level is pretty low. I mean, anybody can cast a Lava Spike, you know. There, mm -hmm. There's some finesse in the higher level play, but it's easy to get a foot in the door. It, there's something to master if you commit yourself to it. So it's a really fun deck. It's pretty accessible, but also there's, there's things to level up with, which is cool. All right, we'll try to get to level 13 today. <laughs> Fun fact, we've never talked to Ryan. Dave, I don't know about you. I've never talked to Ryan before. No, so we're I just we're I don't just leave my house as you know, so yeah. I should hope that people generally aren't right now anyway. So I think we're on the same page there. We've definitely encouraged social distancing on our podcast. <laughs> but this will be a fun experiment in in creating a, a new friendship and relationship live on the air. But because we don't know you at all, I'd love to just take a couple minutes up top, ask you a couple quick questions about yourself, get to know you a little bit as a person beyond Magic the Gathering. Uh, well, most of what I do really is just different engagement with Magic. Um, I stream, as you mentioned, uh, commentary on the SCG Tour, and then I'm part owner of a board game cafe, which we also deal a lot in Magic, uh, Lodestone Coffee and Games in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Though currently, a lot of this stuff is on hiatus. Mostly, I'm just streaming now and passing the time. <laughs> sure. So when the store is open and we're not under quarantine, are you essentially making your entire living off like content and gaming? I mean, gaming is a, it's not, I think, the most uh, accurate way to describe how the retail side of it works. I mean, it is still just retail. It's running a business, but... It is the secondary market, like engagement with things that I care about beyond dollars and cents. Um, I'm a person who has a lot of difficulty doing things like stocks uh, because I just don't care much about money. I care about magic and magic can make me money. So that, that's how I became you know, this involved with this many different elements of it. What's the shop like? Yeah, um, so we were one of the inaugural WPN premium stores, and what that requires is kind of a lot of polish. We're, we're not like the uh, kind of basement ambiance game store that maybe y'all came up in in the 90s and the early 2000s. We're very much more the cafe kind of vibe. I had one of those basement game stores, or my dad did, anyway. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like... I spent a lot of time in them. I'm not trying to pass yeah. too much judgment. 
totally. Right on. I'm one of those people who, whenever I travel anywhere, even internationally, I try to stop into an LGS for like FNM or maybe a midweek magic tournament. So when I'm in your neck of the woods, I'll show up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good time. Uh, we, we try to uh, have a pretty fun, welcoming atmosphere out there. We're um, a bit outside of the cities, but not too far. If you're through Minneapolis, it's not too far to get to us. Awesome. Right on. So how long have you been playing Magic? I started playing Magic when I was in high school. Uh, in 2003, Legions was the new set at the time, which is a very good casual set. <laughs> Lots of creatures, yeah, right? Just, just creatures, in fact. Right. Yeah. yeah. I was on a bit of a hiatus during that that block. That was right at the end of college for me. So I remember coming back later and being like, they made a set of all creatures? Mm-hmm. That is so weird. It, it's still weird if you think about it in retrospect. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of up there with the set that they made. It was Torment, the set that they made around the same time that was mostly black cards. Yeah, there was uh, two sets in that block. So Odyssey had a normal distribution and then Torment and Judgment. One was largely black cards, like more black cards than other colors. And the other one had more green and white than the other colors, if I recall correctly. Yeah. What an experiment. Yeah, they've done some other weird ones since then, but uh, not surprising we haven't uh, double dipped on any of these. Yeah. What first got you into Magic? Well, actually, uh, maybe this is uh, a little embarrassing for some, but I played Yu-Gi-Oh! before I played Magic. Again, I was in high school and, you know, middle school and I was getting into games and I was always kind of into board games. Um, I played a lot of Axis and Allies when I was a little younger than that, and I really always liked deep strategy. I, I, I was always down to hang around for four or five hours and battle with my friends, and Magic was the one that stuck. It was the one that I would always come back to even if I left. That's I actually awesome. never, I've never played Yu-Gi-Oh! I, I have played some other TCGs, including Pokemon, but how does that gateway work? Like, what was it about the similarities between Yu-Gi-Oh! and Magic that got you from one into the other? Uh, I think for like a lot of people, I got into Yu-Gi-Oh! through the anime. I watched Saturday morning cartoons, you know, every Saturday morning. And that one had this game and I was into different kind of games and the collectible pieces and the personalities on the anime are like really in tune with their decks. So there's a lot of customization, which was cool. That was something that I never thought about until somebody else put it into words. I, people commonly say that magic is like chess and poker, but a few years ago, Sam Black, I know that he said it, he said it's like chess, poker, and Legos. And actually, the Lego like customization is a big part of what makes magic special to me. I love that. I might throw in golf sure. because of the <laughs> cost of play. As a commentator, I, I guess I can relate to that part, too. And also the polo shirts. <laughs> All right, so something we like to do on these bonus episodes, especially when we interview people from the Magic community, is a little something that Dave coined called Inside the Grinders Studio. It's inspired by the questionnaire that James Lipton used to do at the beginning of Inside the Actors Studio, basically. So just some general questions about Magic to try to get at the type of personality player you, you kind of are. Sure. Yeah, so these can be one-word responses. We'll we'll probably ask five of these. There there are wrong answers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's kick it off. What's your favorite magic card? Moldrifter. Yes. 
Muldrifter is one of my favorite cards for sure as well, just uh, from limited sense. Didn't really get to play with a lot in Constructed, although there definitely was a phase where I was trying to jam it into stuff like Grixis Twin and <laughs> stuff like that at different points of time for fun. I remember the first time I uh, kind of got to see someone do a Coligan's Command Loop with a Muldrifter, and I was like, this is wild stuff that I want to do, even if it's not that good. Um, so, great great pick, I think, Ryan. Hey, Muldrifter is unimpeachable. Uh, exactly. I, don't, I don't like people who don't like Muldrifter. You are you're not going to find any doubters here. <laughs> I maintain um, a couple. Uh, sorry, this is maybe long oh, for the quick hits, but uh, yeah. I maintain a couple of cubes, and I make a point to only have the English version of cards. And when I had a popper cube, my Moldrifter was Japanese, and my, what I would say is I don't want a cube with anybody who doesn't know Moldrifter. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a reasonable expectation for for people you play Magic with. No, no doubt. So what? is your least favorite card chalice of the void not close to being close that's a good pick i Love think it. that speaks to both of us it does although recently on an episode i did say that i was thinking about buying into etron because chalice finally got a little bit cheaper in price and uh, i was i've also been kind of searching for a deck to play in modern but uh I, i'm gonna avoid that for now i definitely hate facing one down don't really love casting one so. Yeah, I think that's the thing is it's one of those cards that's great when it's played against you, but casting it never feels good. So follow up to that one, change it a little bit. What What's your favorite format in Magic? It fluctuates. I think right now it's just Pioneer for the sheer explorability. Do you have a favorite moment from a game of Magic from your life? It's got to be the Spell Pierce. I don't know if you know this story or if you've seen the clip, but uh, it's round one of a modern open in Minneapolis a few years back. I'm playing against Ponza, and I'm playing Blue-Red Wizards, a short-lived modern deck. And my opponent takes some time shuffling up for their fifth mana source off of Wooded Foothills, and they cast a game-ending Anger of the Gods, and I just flip a Spell Pierce face up from my hand, and they just put the Anger of the Gods in their <laughs> graveyard. Wow. Was this on camera? It was, yeah. It uh, was like front-page Reddit, and like Twitter just blew up. It was... It was pretty surreal. I had a horrible tournament after the fact, but nobody remembers that part. It's all about style points, right? Oh, yeah. All right, this is my favorite one, maybe. Do you have a favorite piece of magic slang? Yeah, I, I generally don't like a lot of mag magic slang, but I am partial to Mize. It's an older one, but it's just like yeah. a, such a perfect form of slang. Mize is short for might as well. And it's just like refusing to justify something. It's just very dismissive. And that's so perfect for an abbreviative slang term. I love it. I remember when that showed up in the store that, like I said, the, the store that my family had at the, the late 90s. And I was like, number one, why is everybody saying this word suddenly? And even now, 25 years later, I'm still not really sure that I use that word correctly ever. <laughs> it's hard, hard to know. I, that definition is super helpful. Yeah, a lot of the definitions for the older slang are lost to time. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to find them on old GeoCities message boards, and even then it's unintelligible. Yeah, you have to find them on, like, old Dojo articles. <laughs> and even then it's just, like, Mike Flores using them and expecting you to know what they are. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so there was a very specific reason we brought you here today. We want to talk to one of the people who we consider an expert in a deck that Dave and I have loved for a long time, and that's Mono Red Prowess. And to give you a little context in our history with this deck, 
Dave and I were both playing Is It Phoenix in its heyday in modern. And then in like early January of last year, uh, there was an SCG indie event. And uh, I decided to play in the modern classic on Sunday. And this deck that like suddenly emerged the Friday before popped up. And Dave saw it do like turn three wins and maybe like go undefeated a couple times on Twitch. And I just decided to pick it up, basically no practice, play it. And I came in 33rd place. And I pretty much loved the deck ever since. Though it was a very sad day when Faithless Looting got banned. Yeah, it's interesting. We sort of started out as an as a Phoenix fan cast in some ways. Our first episode is about Is It Phoenix. It was around the same time that that deck came out. And Stan and I have just been the holdouts for as long as possible playing that card. And then, like Stan said, when... Um, you know, when Faithless Looting was banned, we both shed a little tear and then kind of moved on from there as best as we could, trying different builds of prowess. And you were, I felt like you were a person who, I was like, this is a good player who is still playing this deck and someone who really knew how to play Phoenix too. Like one of the things that I remember, I mean, I've I've been watching on coverage for years, but one thing that sticks out to me is the one time you played um, a team, Teamer Phoenix deck, I think, where you were splashing Traverse the Ulenwald. And I was like, this deck is so awesome. <laughs> I can't wait can't wait to try it out that but, was um, the waning period of me thinking arclight phoenix modern was cool mm-hmm. because then we were still kind of pushing it and trying new things traverse right. was kind of a missing piece and added point of consistency for the deck but meanwhile the format was actually just becoming inbred and horrible where you would get surgical in main in game one like the week after that and then it was yeah. all just like unplayable <laughs> yeah that was kind of a sad moment. We, I mean, we definitely were holdouts who were like, it's fine. It's fine. People will metagame around this. And then it just kind of kept going. We we're like, wow, every deck really has faithless looting in it now. And then Hogat came and just blew everything up. And then, yeah, we know what happens from there. But I think that the, the question, the first question that we had is how, like kind of how have you kind of kept the faith, I guess, in this archetype over, as time has evolved and as it's become maybe arguably less powerful, but then also got better and more explosive in other ways so what makes you keep coming back to this one modern has been changing a lot but it's kind of a the more things change the more things stay the same kind of way i guess the thing that's changing right now is what the busted blue green one card people are playing is but yeah. uh, you know it's been new sets cards banned etc but i still have the same parameters for what makes a modern deck acceptable for me it has to be able to close games on turn three either through dealing lethal damage or functionally being able to buy the turns that you need until the game actually ends and you have to be able to be competitive on turn eight through the decks that are trying to make you hang on until turn eight and Mm -hmm. prowess is a deck that just delivers the turn three wins with relative consistency and bedlam reveler will keep you clawing into the long ones and stuff moves different decks get better or worse but up until most recently, and I think I have some ideas to keep it get breathing some life even through this, it, it's been a deck that's been able to deliver on those fronts. How do you not get bored of this deck, though? You know, there's a lot of decks that would probably fit that criteria, and I know my attention span would probably shrink over time, but it seems like you have a better attention span, at least for this strategy. Yeah, um, I actually tend to get really obsessed with one specific deck in legacy around 
2011 or 12 or whatever, I played Teamer Delver like every week for like mm. three or four years. And just those tempo strategies. And I, I very much think that Prowess is a tempo deck, first and foremost, that have these decision trees where the answer is different every time. Like a lot of decks, it's like, all right, my opponent cast Birds of Paradise. I should kill it because that's how you play magic. That gets pretty boring. But Prowess, like, you don't even kill the bird every time playing this mm -hmm. deck. You know, There's just like a lot of dynamic things, how you turn on your light at the stage, when it's correct to sacrifice your mountains, your horizon lands, when it's correct to shove for one damage or four damage, and you anywhere mm -hmm. in between on a given turn. And there's just a lot of dynamic gameplay that keeps me coming back. That is awesome. Those are literally like four <laughs> questions I had to ask you about later on when we get a little bit deeper in this, specifically killing a mana dork and kind of when to enable light up the stage and stuff like that. So I think we can definitely dig in a little bit uh, in a little bit more about that. Um, but top level, what do you think is the best card in this deck? I mean, there's two answers. The most broken card, the card that really is the glue for how you bridge the gap between Monastery Swiftspear and Bedlam Reveler as Manamorphose. Mm -hmm. Costs zero, triggers prowess, fills up your graveyard with instant slash sorcery. Um, it, it's just really messed up. Your most broken turns tend to involve casting multiple Manamorphose. True. But as you might know if you've tried similar strat strategies in Pioneer, it's hard to play this deck without Lightning Bolt. <laughs> yeah. That's totally true, too. For me, sometimes I wonder if this is like just the Ur Monastery Swift Spear deck, too, in some ways. But I guess there's a lot of threats that you could sub in, and it's a spells deck, and so you need the spells to be broken in order for it to be good, especially in modern. So that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that's a big thing in standard. Things have kind of been rotating around. Um, the Phoenix decks in standard were playable when there were more one-mana things, and a few things changed with rotation, but right now it's like just opt is legal for yeah. cantrips, and you can't really do a lot with just one zero or one mana thing. You kind of need a high volume, and they have to be kind of good, too. Do you think Manamorphose is appropriate for Modern's power level? Uh, is, is your question whether the card is maybe of dubious legality, maybe fishing for a long-term ban? <laughs> It's definitely a card that a lot of people, ourselves included, speculated might eat the ban, especially in the heyday of Visit Phoenix. Yeah, I mean, it's a card that belongs in that conversation. I think that it kind of occupies the space where it enables some things that people like and things that have been around for a number of years. But now we're living in a world where they even banned Mox Opal. So I, I would certainly say this card that is really only known for cheating on mana, that's kind of the only thing it does, is, is maybe not going to be welcome forever. It'll be a sad day for me, but... Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd miss it, but I wouldn't... Uh, it wouldn't blindside mm -hmm. me. Same. One thing I noticed back in the day, even when Faithless Looting was legal, it seemed like you actually put down the Phoenix version of the deck before that was like popular to do. And even while Faithless was legal and there was like this brief moment where there was this Prowess deck and this Phoenix, Mono Red Phoenix deck, it almost seemed like you preferred that straight Prowess build. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely did. I thought that I was really onto something cutting the Phoenixes. Um, I had a number of friends who played the Phoenix version, and I think it's really incoherent putting Arclight Phoenix and Light Up the Stage in the same deck. 
you just raise the volume of cards that you realistically can't use off of your light-up cards. I think Arclight Phoenix is a card that is unreasonable to be casting for four mana in Modern, especially the Moderns that existed when Faithless Looting was legal. We're talking mm -hmm. about eras like Hogak Winter, and just before that, there was plenty of Mox Opal stuff happening. I think that uh, Ironworks was a big deck that really overlapped in kind of the Faithless Looting era, and the Red Phoenix deck did beat up on the Ironworks deck. That that certainly is true, but that was true whether you Phoenix or not. Your prowess creatures just kind of killed them before they could get off the ground, and like one artifact destruction spell could bridge the gap if you were a turn slow. Um, but, but the Arclight Phoenixes, they just were inconsistent at doing the recursive thing. The light up the stage thing just doesn't really work. It really makes things kind of random, whether you're playing correctly or not. Like you kind of have to play as if you're not going to exile a Phoenix and cast your lootings as if they might draw a Phoenix or keep your hands with Phoenix as if you might draw a looting. You know, the nut draw is going to beat everybody, but that's true of literally every deck. So that's a bad benchmark, bad line to go off of. And the other thing is, as far as Arclight Phoenix decks go, I liked it. I liked Teamer, but a big thing was you could block with your Phoenix, and it would come back later. The Red Phoenix deck just cast all of its spells, and then it was yeah. just out. The, the Phoenix has never came back twice. Great points. I mean, I, I feel like I was often blinded by the fact that you could do, like, 18 damage to someone on turn two with the, the Phoenix deck, but you're right. It, it ran out of gas as so much more hard than other ones. Yeah, and, and now I think that um, obviously Faithless Looting is not legal, but if we're talking about a format where Force of Negation exists, I'm pretty sure that Mono Red Phoenix loses on the spot if you force a negation of Faithless Looting, <laughs> which is not true of Mono Red Prowess. That's interesting. So we had a question in the notes that we were going to ask next that was, is the, is the red prowess deck ever as good without Phoenix as it was with Phoenix? The answer, we're just going to skip that. Cause the answer is yes. From, <laughs> from Rhino over to, well, were you also playing faithless looting even sans Phoenix? Yep. Uh, faithless looting still worked in the deck because you're trying to play four Bedlam revelers. Sometimes mm -hmm. you draw two. also looting is kind of dark ritual for Bedlam reveler. In particular, if you're playing a matchup where you're, front side of your lava dart really isn't worth a mana you just discard that to the looting and then it's there later so then has the deck do you think gotten worse since the banning of looting even like the non-phoenix version yeah it took a hit um but actually right after the looting ban um i spent some time trying to figure out what the deck should look like because i wasn't sure if you could still play four revelers in world world without looting Ended up landing on not only could you, but you really should. You realistic, mm. realistically can't trim that card if you want to be competitive against the more grindy decks. But uh, once I figured that out, I think that it wasn't until the printing of Oko that any other deck really held a candle to prowess. <laughs> Oko. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a bad time in Magic history. It was. Yeah, I was playing four-color Shadow a lot then which was like a very bad Oko deck, but still still very good just because Oko was very good. Yeah, they so. gave you some free ones. Yeah. So then what do you think is the current state of Mono Red? Um, so right now I think Uro is really a beating, and a number of the matchups that you really are hoping to run into, uh, two specific ones that showed up a lot during both Hogak 
modern and during Oko modern were Druid combo and Infect, and I just don't see those decks at all. When those mm-hmm. matchups go away, that's a problem. But I think that it's one you can innovate around. I, I think that the deck really cooled off a bit post-Theros, but uh, I think that there's some iterations you can make to put it back on the map. Yeah, I remember I felt like I first saw it make a comeback right around the time MTGO introduced the preliminary tournaments. And that's when we started getting these daily results. And for a long time, I feel like for the first couple months of the prelims, we would see mono red prowess decks go 4-1, 5-0 almost every time. And that was when I first like kind of woke up and was like, maybe this deck actually still has legs. And that's when we started really seeing like Fort Bedlam Reveler was stock. People were really into crash through. Sometimes people were playing Steamkin, which I think leads us to the section where we've listed a bunch of red spells. And now we want to ask how you <laughs> feel about them because all right love it because I'll, I'll, I'll also say this i've liked bedlam reveler but i've never felt like i've loved it and there have been times it's a card you have to love it's a card you have to love your love for it has to be unconditional bedlam reveler is more like your son than your friend <laughs> you can't you can't cut it from the deck even when it disappoints you that's so interesting because there was a time where i was like i'd just rather play seasoned pyromancer it's always three mana sometimes it's extra See, seasoned pyromancer that that's like your roommate you know he'll always buy the beer but bedlam reveler is the only one that can make you proud <laughs> why is that that's amazing what, what does bedlam do for the deck is it just that it lets you hang past turn eight yeah it's really the only card that generates it, like drawing three cards is something that assuming the battlefield is relatively even is going to our overpower most matchups as long as the game is still progressing and then being a three four with prowess and a deck that's playing crash through it actually just pays off in a much bigger way season pyromancer can block out of some situations but you never block your opponent to death bedlam reveler is much better at crossing the finish line so then season pyromancer would you even say is basically doesn't belong in the deck right now yeah i wouldn't touch season pyromancer it's defensible as a sideboard card but in general the matchups you bring it in for i I think that a lot of players would do well to study diversifying their play patterns in those matchups because i've personally felt like jund is an even too favorable matchup for prowess and that's a matchup that i hear a lot of players saying "I, i can't beat jund and it's like well Maybe you're not being as critical of where you're supposed to point your lightning bolts. I think a big thing for me against Jund is sometimes you're supposed to just let them activate the Liana. Just like do the math on when lightning bolt is still lethal and they have to discard two cards when you have like an extra land to discard. And there's a lot of interesting and cool micro decisions that I think that if you just make a little better, you find yourself winning the matchup more than you're losing more than you're losing it. And at that point, then you don't need to use sideboard space on kind of clunky stuff that doesn't really win games. Yeah, I will say it's I, I recently played tried to play a Hollow One deck in Pioneer that had four Ox of Vagonis in it. And I kept playing that card and just being like, the Bedlam Reveler effect is so good. Mm-hmm. It's so good that it made me want to go back and start playing it in modern and go back to mono red prowess in modern just because I was like, even just that that enters the battlefield effect does so much for you, even a deck that doesn't really synergize with the discard part of it all that much at this point. Um, 
it's such a powerful thing to do to have that be the last card that you play draw three cards probably get you know four to six damage just off of the three cards that you draw and then kind of go to town from there um not to mention that it's a big it's a big threat too if you manage to crash through with it or something like that yeah ox is messed up i think that if looting was still legal you might mess around with a small number of ox in the prowess deck yeah, I, I had a lot of high hopes for that card, and I feel like it's just not the right environment for it to do what it needs to do other than in Dredge, mm-hmm. as far as Modern goes anyway. Yeah, I agree with that. But, um, all right, so next controversy we want to talk about a little bit. I feel like this is one that really was something that confused me a little bit about this era of prowess, and that is Kiln Fiend versus Runaway Steamkin. And I know you have some strong feelings about this. <laughs> I, I've actually we're we're not partisans on this discussion. We're we're here to to hear hear your thoughts for okay. sure. So. Well, well, I appreciate that. Uh, I've actually soured a lot on any two mana creature. Um, the thing is oh, wow. that your one mana creatures, you know, they die to removal. That's fine. Removal all cost at least one mana, so that's just an even exchange. You're you're leaning on Bethlehem Revel for that point, but. When you cast a threat and it just dies, if it takes your full turn, and we're talking about a format where games often end on the third or fourth turn, that's that's 33%, that's 25% of an entire game. So that's actually right. a steep cost to have your two-mana creature just tagged. So what your card has to do to be worth that kind of risk has to be pretty powerful. For Kiln Fiend, it's going to often be the case that if you untap with Kiln Fiend, you will just win the game. And, and in yeah. fact, I... Went to bat four and experimented with just having Kiln Fiends even in the sideboard as part of the plan against Dredge. But right now all the Dredge players have multiple lightning axes in their sideboard and they're not trimming on conflagrates. And if you spend your turn doing that and your Kiln Fiend just dies right away, then they get an extra turn of dredging. And that means an extra turn of looks at creeping chills. And that means it's probably mm-hmm. going to take you another turn to kill them because they just gained life for free for no reason. You know, there's yeah. a lot of cascading ways the game gets worse for you every turn that you tack onto it. Steamkin doesn't provide any resource that you were ever at any risk of running out of. This card doesn't close the game on turn three unless you are just chaining light up the stages or building up a chain all the way to Bethlehem Reveler, at which point you're only losing to just dying. And if you have a bunch of spells that you're casting... What are you just dying to? Like, what, what is the Steam Can actually ever accomplishing? Like, you can literally cast it and literally win a game, but it's almost never because Steam Can was there. Hmm. He's just at the party. You know, he doesn't do anything. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you, you resolve two Bethlehem Revelers. Of course you won. It doesn't matter if it takes three more turns. You're still going to win. <laughs> so so then, So then what about Kiln Fiend? Because they... You know, Kilnfiend is the aggressive creature, right? Yeah, I just had a few too many, like, collective brutality You know, you can tiptoe around that a little bit with your with your 1-2 prowess creatures, just leave up a spell, but Kilnfiend's just always there to die. Hmm. It really is. It's so, the league I played last night, I ran three Kilnfiends in it, and I was, every time I played it, I was like, this card is just not gonna... It's just not going to get there. And it is the worst top deck. Mm-hmm. It's just the worst top deck when you're on like turn five and you're like, I need something here. I need a lightning bolt here. I mean, whatever. And then you top deck Kiln Fiend. You're like, cool, their removal is back on. <laughs> right. Now I guess they I guess they get to lightning bolt this or whatever. And then there's nothing quite like the exquisite pain of attacking with a Kiln Fiend and a Monastery Swift Spear after casting three spells and then having the Kiln Fiend get Fatal Push, oh, yeah. which is just like, you know. I mean, that's living magic in modern, but it... it, it 
it's just it feels so much worse yeah like it, it's a free roll if you have a kiln fiend and you cast some mana morphoses and the user removal spell it's like okay well my spells were free right. i cast another threat but if you just have two lava darts in your hand and your opponent has open mana are you supposed to go for lethal like how much damage are you gonna do because if it's not right. lethal then they're just still playing the game and you just right. have like two damage left over and they're at like seven so they're still just like casting threats maybe it's a deck that has one toughness creatures too this was a real cost of firing off your lava darts and right it's, it's a real stressful card to play with and the downside i think ends up outweighing the, the upside do you think that the deck okay so this is maybe getting into some of the innovation area that you're thinking about right now Danny, which like if you want to keep that in the lab for a little bit i totally understand but so are you thinking about so you said you're down on two drops totally are you thinking about other ways to increase threat density in the deck? Or are you think you're thinking about other ways to build the deck going forward that that uh, better utilizes the threats that are already there? Yeah, better utilizing the threats that are already there. I mean, okay. generally, it's been a 12 threat deck for me. It, it's eight, one, two, prowess creatures for one and four bedlam revelers. And that's been a consistent recipe for success. If you can figure out the other spells, you know, you're not cutting your crash throughs. You're not cutting your mana morphose. You're not cutting your lightning bolt. Uh, as much as I've tried, you're not cutting your lava spikes. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're not cutting yeah. your lava darts. Um, but my plan right now is just to make the deck a little bit more focused on maximizing the existing threats. I see you have Blister Coil Weird on your list. That's another one that I've tried. That one's a little bit better than the two drops in some respects in that it always trades even on mana mm-hmm. at, at a minimum. It trades even on mana with the Fatal Push. But yeah. it's harder to protect from a lightning bolt. It takes fully three spells where casting a lava dart and flashing it back to block against a lightning bolt is just a pretty common play for this deck. Blister yep. Coil Weird still just dies if you have that, which is pretty frustrating because your burn spell only deals two damage and it costs you a mountain to cast. You know, that, that's a real cost. The one interaction I really like is Blister Coil Weird against Cryptic Command. But that's such a small percentage of the format mm. that it doesn't really come up too much. Yeah, that's that's one of those ones where you're like, this is how I get to sneak by you, uh, sneak by you, control player. But yeah, yeah, there's there's, there's going to supreme verdict you anyway. So what what does right. it really matter? Yeah, they're going to path to exile you or whatever. Too. Yeah, I have seen some people occasionally bring in young pyromancer, and maybe that was a little bit more of a Oko era thing when you needed to like make a bunch of bodies that you don't mind turning into elk but what what's your experience with young peasy oh uh, well i guess first i'll just address the oko thing i think with oko you either kill oko the turn it comes down or the game is over i think if your opponent activates oko so much as twice no matter what deck you're playing the game has ended i think that was broadly true so even though i thought lava spike was pretty bad against oko i left it in to try to lava spike down okos with uh, whatever threat i had left over when it showed up mm-hmm uh, Young Pyromancer is something that is clearly trying to play a value game, but the problem is there's nothing that it does that is vul- that uh, makes it resilient to literally any removal spell. And my only experience, the only time I've seen it was playing a mirror match, and you had better have a plan to board that out against the Lava Dart deck, let me tell you. For sure. So then... I want to talk a little bit about the spells that have come in since Faithless Looting, because there has been a little bit of a rotation. At one point, even Renin Six made the cut. <laughs> so it seems like Crash Through is is stock at this point. 
Yeah, I think that people really came around on Crash through um, this deck. So when I build decks, I don't just like sit down and say, I think these cards would go in a deck. I mean, I guess I do that, but I do that seven or eight times. And then right. enough of the individual elements for those decks come together and like, okay, now I have built a good deck now that I have failed a dozen times. And Crash Through was a holdover from a really bizarre abomination when I tried to hybridize Arclight Phoenix and Death Shadow. I wanted to give Death Shadow Trample, and I wanted red instants and sorceries that replaced themselves. Mm -hmm. And Crash Through in that deck was giving me the ability to punch over protection from black or protection from red creatures or whatever, and that remains true in Prowess. Uh, when I first built the Prowess deck, I was sideboarding this card out sometimes, and in my experience, that is close to never correct. This card just gives you velocity, pumping your prowess creatures for the card that replaces itself, gasses up your bedlam revelers, and then just a lot of people try to get you with pro-red creatures, and I love just smushing them anyway with Crash Through. Yeah. This definitely was a card when I saw this start showing up, I was like, really? Ca crash Through? I mean, you know, one one mana draw a card cards are unilaterally like powerful, I think, in a lot of ways, just because they're, they're like waving little flags that say if you get me in the right shell i can be abused you know and so the trample totally makes sense after you feel what it's like to get your um you know your swift spear stonewalled basically and this is something that just lets you go right over it for basically no cost the one question i have about crash through just like tactically is are you are you are you ever just like cycling this off to try to get to a better draw early in the game or cycling it off early just to get an extra point of damage and draw, get like increase the velocity of your deck? Or are you trying to, I mean, I'm, I'm sure everything is situational, mm -hmm. but it's kind of like trying to figure out sometimes when I play it, do I just fire this off on turn two when I'm uh, for essentially no value other than drawing a card? If human beings kept stat books on completely inane things, I would have the world record for turn one crash throughs and it, it would not be close. It would not be remotely close. You just keep hands that have redraws and a couple interactive spells, especially if you already have the Bedlam Reveler and you just try to get the Bedlam Reveler castable as quickly as possible. And cycling crash through is one of your most effective ways to do that. Wow, this really tails well with one of my other questions about like heuristics for playing this deck. So are you telling me you keep hands that don't have one drop threats? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The thing about that is you know, a number of people ask me this question. Uh, Prowess is not a deck that mulligans very well. I totally agree, which had a lot of conflict between those two thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. And if you mulligan because you want to turn one threat in, in the dark and you say turn one Soulscar Mage, and you have a hand that's good because if the Soulscar Mage connects, you have a light up the stage, and your opponent's just like Swamp Fatal Push, the game's just over sometimes. So you can't really yeah. mulligan to hope that that is good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so are you keeping threats sometimes, like you said, like Lightning Bolt, uh, Lava Dart, land land and a couple of crash throughs, and you're kind of like, I have no threats, but I have a removal spell that I can use. And I also have a couple of cyclers to draw into a threat to set me up for Bedlam Reveler. Or do you feel like you need some kind of game plan off the top that involves an endpoint with a threat? Um, I think that as long as a hand has some number of redraws, some kind of cantripic effect, you can be a little bit more generous in what you keep. A hand without threats that I would not keep is like mountain, mountain, mountain for burn spells. Sure. Because you're, you're not a burn spell. You're not a burn deck. 
you can yeah. keep four lava spikes and never deal 20 damage. You could play you could play a five or six turn games keeping a hand that's three mountains and four lava spikes and never be able to deal lethal damage. Yeah. Totally makes sense. Does does light up the stage count as a redraw for you? Depends what is turning it on and what I need to hit, but generally yes. Okay. I I am not shy about lava darting my opponent to turn on light up the stage. How often are you playing Warlord's Fury? Um, so that's actually the current idea I have for the deck. So the flex slot that I think has gotten very bad, I mentioned earlier that Druid combo, and in fact, seemed to be on a serious downswing. And I'm really just not into Burst Lightning, um, Wild Slash, Shock, whatever variant you're playing. I have had that card in my hand and come up just a little bit short against Uro just too many times. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm just going to keep playing the Mishra's Bobble build and play two Warlord's Fury. Yeah, so 10, fully 10 kind of cantrips plus four light at the stage, so 14 cards that draw. And Manamorphos as well. Oh, and Manamorphos, yeah, I totally forgot about the broken one. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Have you experimented with um, Bone Crusher Giant? I have. Uh, I think that it's just firmly a sideboard card. I started with two in the main. Patrick Sullivan's actually pretty big on Bone Crusher Giant. We kind of maintained some conversation around the deck. Obviously, he's really into Lava Spikes and Lightning Bolts, so yeah. kind right. of a common interest there. And he's pretty big on Bone Crusher Giant. And I found that drawing two in game one in too many matchups was too much of a liability. So I trimmed it down to one, tried that for a while. But um, if if my position is that I think that Wild Slash or Burst Lightning isn't good, Bone Crusher Giant is just the same card that costs twice as much in a lot of your games. So uh, I like it as a cyborg card. I think it's very good in all of the red mirrors. And I do think it carries its weight against a deck like Jund, where it can, you know, tase a Bloodbraid Elf and then be a card that demands an answer and sometimes you just get extra damage, you know. As long as it's not getting checked by Tarmogoyf, then it's like shocking your opponent or eating some loyalty from a Liliana. So I do like it in those matchups as well, but I like it as a sideboard card. And that's that's where mm-hmm. I would put in my sideboard if I was interested in a card like Season's Pyromancer. I think Bone Crusher just does it better. I bet. Yeah, you kind of know what you're getting in the two-for-one with Bone Crusher. You can plan around it a little better than with Pyromancer, where sometimes you're not going to get the tokens sometimes you're going to draw air so mm-hmm. yeah and if you sense. like there's the problem with bedlam revler where you draw two or like god forbid three or four but yeah. season pyromancer just adds another card where you can't get rid of all of them you know <laughs> like they're going right. to be discarding the others to uh the other copy and then i imagine the same feelings you have towards burst lightning and shock etc is probably where you stand on firebolt yeah firebolt i actually Never really understood this one because flashing it back for five to deal two damage seems very weak. Uh, I've heard, had multiple people tell me that they're really into flashing back Firebolt, and I'm just like, did you play this deck in a booster draft, or what's, what's going on <laughs> where you're really big on that effect? But being an instant is so important in this deck. Anytime you're playing any matchup that's about creatures engaging in combat or lightning bolts, like damage-based effects, being able to cast spells at instant speed is just of paramount importance. So are you at this point, do you think for, so it, just like categories of sideboard cards, sometimes this deck runs like uh Leyline of the Void. Sometimes it runs Tarmod's Crypt. Are you kind of like more, 
I mean, the, the metagame is not so broken that everybody's running Leylight right now. So are you kind of more in the Tormod's Crypt kind of zone if we were running Graveyard Hate than anything else? I actually swear by Surgical Extraction. Okay. It's a little bit weaker in terms of the ceiling of hate it provides. However, it naturally fits in the deck. It's an instant speed, you know, pump spell. It counts for juicing your Bedlam Reveler. It's free. It, yeah, it's free. And <laughs> yeah. I don't know how much you've queued into Dredge, but they always bring in artifact hate. They just yeah. always do it. So yeah. Crypt, they're sometimes just going to punk you with an Ancient Grudge, and your Crypt's not going to do anything, where Surgical is going to be weaker, but it's going to do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I, it's it's uh, maybe a little better against Uro right now, which I'm, I feel like is one of the major stumbling blocks of the deck at the moment, so that, yeah. that makes sense. I haven't figured out sideboarding in all of the Uro matches, because the thing is, a two, that Uro means any number of well, like five different Uro decks or something. Yeah, but th- unfortunately yeah right right yeah yeah not saying that is a good thing <laughs> right but i think i like like one or two surgicals in most of the Euro matchups yeah how about blood moon versus alpine moon alpine moon is one that i was big on before field of the dead was printed but now i'm just kind of off of both of them i'm just trying to win any match where you would want that effect on turn three that's actually where i'm at uh because mm-hmm. dry of the Allegian grove is such a problem and all these decks have gotten a little bit wiser about engaging with prowess you know your tron opponents bringing in dismembers now right so like they're just going to bridge the gap until they need to pop an oath stone that way so i'm just mm-hmm. trying to make them actually care about that life that they would otherwise be spending on dismember it makes sense. Do you feel like, I mean, I always felt like this had a pretty good matchup against Tron, and I even feel like sometimes it has a pretty good matchup against Titan as well. And because um, they feel like if, it's just kind of like, feels like it's designed to punish the big mana decks and then kind of loses a little bit of steam against these decks that have life gain in them, essentially in the mid-range kind of zone. Do you, do you feel like that's where it fits in the metagame? Or? Yeah, I think that generally the big mana matchups are pretty positive. Dryad of the Legion Grove has the other thing where it's a four-toughness creature. Like it, yeah. it does more than one thing that you care about. So the Titan matchups have gotten yeah. a little bit worse. But but then I'm bringing in Dismember exactly. against them. There's, right? there's things it's you like, can do. And, and fingers crossed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's just uh, kind of the point that I was making about playing against the Jun matchup is it, oftentimes when a new card shows up and the matchup feels worse, maybe it just means you need to reevaluate your general approach to it and... Dismember, like, it kills Sakura Tribe Scout, too. It's just fine in that right. matchup, you know? Yeah, I, I popped an uh, Arboreal Grazier with a Dismember <laughs> on turn two yesterday in the matchup that I played, and I was like, this is the right play. I got to do, like, 11 damage because of that, basically. So oh, yeah. get it out of yeah, there. It's got to swallow your pride and kill the O3 sometimes. Right. So you mentioned early in our conversation that you see this as a tempo deck which actually is interesting to me uh, because i wanted to kind of pick your brain on how you see it compared to traditional boros burn since i think one of the things that makes it kind of a good deck compared to maybe some mono red decks in pioneer is that you can in theory have this burn plan to kind of fall back on since your one mana do still do three damage Mm hmm yeah, you do, have, you do play a lot of games where over the course of a couple turns you're just trying to peel the last Lava Spike or Lightning Bolt or whatever. You're able to do that. Uh, it kind of naturally fits in 
the way you'd be playing the game really in any of your game plans. But the difference between Prowess and Burn is that Burn's going to keep that three land four Lava Spike hand. And you would be a fool to mulligan it because it is not getting better. Mm-hmm. There is no mm-hmm. chance that you mulligan that seven card hand and it gets better. Prowess is more dynamic in its game plans, and you are able to better play long games because of Bedlam Reveler, assuming you get the right spread of things, which yeah, I, I've at this point played thousands of matches. You're going to get burned sometimes, but it is consistent at playing the long games, assuming your opponent you know doesn't actually beat you before it happens. Uh, whereas burn, I think that the one strength burn has over prowess is you get free wins off of Eidolon of the Great Rebel. But in terms of just keeping any hand and having the ability to fight through interaction or play a long game, I think prowess is much better. And prowess also at the same time, and it's, it's weird, but you also just win on turn three more often. So right. it, it's hard for me to say that burn is a better deck, but when forced to critically think about it, the nod I give to burn is that Eidolon is a card that generates some free wins. Mm-hmm. Do you think, so I think there's a little bit of a conception that sort of prowess and burn are opposite ends of a spectrum, sort of, or that, you know, when burn is good in a metagame, prowess is a little less good, and when prowess is better, burn is a little less good. I, I kind of feel like that's a false equivalency in a lot of ways. Do you do you think that that's... Yeah, I mean, I think honestly about that? think that burn has been a mid-tier deck forever. Like, <laughs> I think maybe Deathrite Shaman Modern was the height of Burn's powers. Probably. And Prowess has been in the conversation for top three decks basically since its inception. And I don't think there's been any reversal in position between those two decks. I do think that Burn is a deck that Prowess really needs to respect in the sideboard. But if you come with the right tools, I like the Prowess side of that. And I like the Prowess against the field (laughs) so it's hard for me to say that burn has really ever felt better than prowess for any point where prowess is a deck you should be playing you heard it here first (laughs) do you think prowess can beat an uro deck oh i mean in absolute terms yes (laughs) (laughs) it of course can happen um i think that getting it to the point where you're favored against an uro deck Assuming the Uro deck takes note and tries to iterate back, I think that the Uro deck ends up on top at the end of any kind of arms race where you are in direct competition. But that's the beauty of modern, is you're going to try to get better against Uro, and they are going to play against 70 other decks. So I think that right now, the focus should be on tightening up the matchup and I think cutting the shocks and just getting a little bit more streamlined is how you do that. And I don't really expect Uro to crack back at you because mm-hmm. even if you tighten up your prowess list, the Uro player is going to queue into some knucklehead playing Steamkin and win very easily and not respect the matchup and then you'll beat them in a match where it matters. That's interesting. Is Skullcrack just like one of the solutions to the Uro matchup, or are there other cards that you look toward to do that? I don't think Skullcrack really can work in the deck. In particular, if we're talking about a deck that's generally not very good at only winning through Lava Spikes, um, the Uro decks tend to also play Weather the Storm, so there's just like a bunch of different effects that you need to Skullcrack Mm -hmm. through. I think that you do just try to... Go for a fast enough one, you know, play your one drops, try to thread the needle and weather the storm, 
try to get to the Bedlam Reveler phase in the game in a way where the Bedlam Reveler is still relevant. You know, don't let them get out of control with a Jace or bringing Uro back. Try to push back on them with Surgical Extraction. And I think you can play the game in a way that is kind of mid-rangey, in a way that they're not going to expect you to be able to. But I think the more you try to play a Skullcrack to play into their game, the more they're going to capitalize on on you for that. You just can't leave up that much mana. I think you have to be engaging with them pretty head on. Yeah, I've tried Skullcrack a couple of times recently, and I felt like, what am I doing? Yeah. I was like, this is one of those things where I feel like, you know, I, I even playing this deck frequently over the last year, I was still thinking of it a little bit in the burn paradigm and it's like well skull cracks okay and burn i might as well try it out here and it's just it's really not yeah I it's mean, really not helping you there's the hyper focused my opponent gains six life and now i'm losing the game and wouldn't it be great if their life total was six lower right but then there's the broader picture where it's like i did not have the time to leave up two mana a b if i did they would have just done something else <laughs> uh, right. and c this is just not very good in my deck and I, I think that you have to do something with a little bit more finesse. And I like this slightly heavier cantrip version. Uh, because in these matchups, I think that Lava Spike is pretty bad against the Uro decks. Obviously, mm-hmm. if you Lava Spike them and then the Uro, <laughs> what did you accomplish? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And Skullcrack is a little bit more of the same to a different extent, but uh, kind of similar play patterns there. And I think that your crash throughs and your... Uh, two Warlord's Fury is what I'm going to be starting with, are just generally going to be better to cast than Lava Spike because they net you damage and replace themselves. It's less damage, mm-hmm. but you will still have cards in your hand, and that's really yeah. going to matter, I guess, an opponent drawing multiple extra cards a turn. Absolutely. So I think we've talked about a number of different fallacies in the in the discussion about the deck, right? Do you have to mull to a one-drop? Is the deck's only game plan to go fast? Can we even beat an Uro deck? Like, what's the plan about that? Do you feel like there are other... Is there another big glaring mistake that you think people have as far as when they think about prowess as a deck? I mean, one might be that... I don't know if most people would agree with... Would I think a lot of people would be surprised by the statement that it's been one of the best three decks in modern for the last year, essentially, is kind of what what you're saying. I think that's a totally reasonable thing to say. Um, but what do you think are some other fallacies that maybe people have about this deck or big glaring mistakes that they're making? Um, I think that the, the big one is something that we largely touched on is a lot of people pick up this deck and play it like a burn deck. Mm-hmm. And I think if you try to do that, you will get burned yourself. Um, I was watching a friend play a match in a ptq a couple months back and he was playing this blue moon deck and he played against prowess and he cast a turn two thing in the ice and the prowess player just had a swift spear had lightning bolt lava dart and a second land and i walked away because i was like oh Lido's getting destroyed like this Mm -hmm. there's no way that thing in the ice is making it a turn so it's never going to transform and i walked back and the prowess player had a lava spike in his graveyard and it was still turn two it's just like you have to play this deck to engage in attrition right you let your opponents have permanence on the battlefield you you just don't have enough burn to just close games that way you have to identify that there are permanents that are problems for you 
but you can kill them and still win the game. And a lot of that is leaning on Bedlam Reveler, and you won't always draw it, but you'll draw it often enough. And also, when you need extra cards, sometimes you'll light up the stage, sometimes your Horizon lands, they'll get you enough cards. You know, it won't be the overwhelming right. beatdown where you just topple over them with Revelers at the end, but you'll get just enough. Um, and, and approaching the deck that way, where sometimes you have to play the control. In fact, a pretty large percentage of the time you play the control, even in matchups where you wouldn't think it. I find myself playing the control against Jund if I think they can't beat Bedlam Reveler the way the game is going. And you win plenty of games that way, even though they clearly are the pound-for-pound pound more powerful individual card-quality deck. You know, 1-2 right. is a lot weaker than Termagoyf in most situations. <laughs> but sometimes yeah. you can wear them down. Yeah, that's awesome. Are you ever are you ever siding out Bedlam Reveler, especially like if you see maybe Graveyard Hate in game two? Um, there are times. It's it's really a high context. Um, I was siding out in Hogak Modern against Hogak, but I actually ended up reevaluating that once I got on the four surgical plan. Because if you surgical them twice, then the game does last long enough where you want to draw that card. And even when they're a little bit turned off, when they're not dredging every turn, they're still putting some power on the table, which means your burn spells can't always go upstairs, at which point you do need to draw the extra cards. And I think that there's very rare situations where you want to board out Bedlam Reveler. I think the big one is I would make sure to trim against Tron. You know, four revelers is never going to be an element of a normal game against Tron that you win. Yeah. Yeah, I've been, I, I my habit has always been to kind of snap take it out against graveyard hate, but that maybe is just not the right thing to do just because you're, you might need it. Yeah, people just don't have that much hate. It kind of depends the form of the hate. Because the thing is, if, if their hate is Leyline, they're not always going to have it. Sometimes they're mulligan it, mulligan to it. And if they do have a ley line, if you draw exactly one Reveler, you've broken even on cards. You're still that turn three deck sometimes. Sometimes they mulligan to a ley line, and you cast a Soulscar Mage, and you cast four spells, and the game ends. Like that, yep. That's just a thing that your deck sense. does, you know? You can't play too scared around Graveyard Hate, and sometimes they'll have the Graveyard Hate. You know, what, what happens if they have ley line, don't have it in their opener, and then draw it? That's like the best case scenario for you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So that was a lot of mono red talk. It was very hot. We do want to ask a couple of questions about magic in general, because we do play other decks. We play some other formats as well. And in general, we were curious as someone who plays a lot of magic streams so frequently and is in coverage. What do you think about the current state of both modern and pioneer? I feel like pioneer is in a good spot right now. You know, there's a few decks that are obviously the top decks in the format, but there's not kind of a deck that every week I log in and I play against it four times. There's three decks that if I go a day and I don't play against Heliod, Inverter, or Sultai, it's going to be weird if I don't queue into any of those. But mm -hmm. I'm not playing like the four Inverter, one Sultai leagues. I'm still playing against a bunch of different stuff. You know, these are easy decks to fall back on. People are going to play them, but they're not dominating the format. And there's pretty good diversity. And the games generally are pretty good. I feel like what I do matters, and it also matters relative to what my opponent does, which is the pinnacle of magic. That's, that's really what you want out of a game, right? Yeah. Do you uh, do you feel good about their, the fact that there hasn't been a ban to take Inverter down a peg? Like that was the correct decision? I 
correct is such a strong word for these circumstances you know it's kind of a dweeby thing to say like oh hate's a really strong word but like yeah uh, they're going to ban dig through time eventually it didn't have to be now but you wonder when just up i wake up every day wondering that honestly (laughs) is it today (laughs) is it today i mean honestly i don't know if you know about the website that we the side website that we have that's called mtgbandswhen.com which is just like if you want to know when there's a band coming, go and look at it. Although I didn't update it to, for the brawl band that's coming up because like, I don't care about that. But um, I, I still feel like both Day Through Time and Treasure Cruise are going to go. I don't think they're going to make it a year in the format. And uh, every day I wonder if this is going to be the day. And I know you've done your part to try to make uh, Treasure Cruise get on people's radars. Yeah, I have I have a handful of five O's with Treasure Cruise, Arclight Phoenix decks and my interest in that deck waxes and wanes because it's a really stressful deck to play. You know, this is the thing. It's similar to Prowess where, like, you have a cruise in your hand and if you draw strategic planning, your opponent is going to get destroyed. And if you draw a second right. treasure cruise, you're going to feel stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Stan and I both definitely sleeved up that deck as soon as Pioneer was announced and have tried to play it a bunch of times as well. So I, I feel you on that. Uh, what's your favorite deck in Pioneer right now? Um, I actually, uh, last, last, today I streamed some Nexus Midrange. That, that deck is something I think is kind of charming, but yesterday I streamed some Mono Red Prowess in Pioneer, and I ended up, uh, wow. putting up a 5-0 with a deck that's pretty different from how the modern deck works, but it speaks to my passions and my interests, so, uh, I'm pretty hot on that deck right now. I'm going to have to go look that up because I think I missed that on the, on Twitter when you, when you, cause you post up your deck list every time before you're about to stream. I, I must've missed that one yesterday. Yep. I will go look it up because looking for a new deck to try out in pioneer could be a, my, one of my favorite decks from modern, I guess. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's different, but there's a lot of overlap. Awesome. And as for modern, how do you feel about that format right now? I think modern's a little bit more of a mess. There's still some, leftover noise from modern horizons there's mm-hmm. new cards coming in that are kind of heavy-handed in how powerful they are i don't enjoy playing against Uro. i don't enjoy playing against dryad of the Allegiant grove but yeah. at this point you know i haven't gotten i haven't reached the volume of playing against these decks or maybe the requisite specific negative experience where i feel like these are dramatically worse than other things. Yeah, at the end of the day, I'm still registering Manamorphose. You know, I'm still right. getting away with one myself. Well, um, you have to, right? If you want to keep up with modern, true. you have to do at least one broken thing. Yeah, if there's no chance that your modern deck will get banned, that sounds like you're probably not taking the tournament serious enough to win it. You know. Yep. But modern, I think, is about as good as it ever is. You know, a lot of people have in their heart of hearts in their mind's eye an idea of the gilded age of modern and all of those formats suck <laughs> splinter twin modern sucked i love treasure cruise modern it was horrible yeah. it was just a disaster you know the, the modern format that you liked wasn't any good either they're, they're all just fine yeah the uh i think that people forget how short the treasure cruise modern was and how much the because there was a pro tour during that i think or some high level play and i remember i think patrick chapin talked about it and was like yeah there were of the top 12 tables it was like 20 20 blue red delver decks with treasure crews in them and that is not good <laughs> no you know birthing pod sorry that was not good like 
but I still think it's fun. You know, I, I also think that the diversity of decks that I'm facing online right now is pretty good. Like, like you said, it's not like I'm, you're facing Earl all the time and I still get annoyed with dredge, even though there's no reason for dredge to be super great right now, but it's still out there being a good deck. You know, last night, the league I played in, I played like I may have mentioned, I played against Tron twice and Titan and, uh, that was fine to play against mono green Tron twice. It was like, I haven't seen this deck in a while. And I played against in round one and round two. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Green Tron is like weirdly one of the good guys now. It doesn't mean, what does it even beat anymore? Green Tron shows up and you're like, Oh, how quaint. Probably John. (laughs) Whatever. I got a little scared. So I lost one of the games against a turn four Ulamog. So I was like, God, I do not want to lose a match against, against green Tron. And I was playing a bobble build of prowess last night. And I took a look at their deck with, with the bobble and was, or yeah. And was like, their top card was a worm coil engine. And I was like, sweet, I'm probably going to die right now. And then they chose to play a different card on their fourth, fourth turn. And then I just ran them over. So, yeah, but I was definitely like, boy, if this if this goes, I'm going to be done for. <laughs> I almost think that modern kind of sucking all the time is the appeal. At least it is for me. Like, I just love yeah. that I have an outlet for this broken shenanigans every once in a while. Well, there's an important element of magic that I think it's hard to have an appreciation for specifically when you are in the loser's bracket, but it's very important that magic is kind of egalitarian. This is something that came up on my stream today. People were comparing Hogak to Coblade, and like, you know what? You know what the big difference is? Hogak's not worse than Coblade. Coblade's worse than Hogak because bad players couldn't ever win a tournament during Coblade. Hmm. It hmm. is imperative that bad players can win tournaments. That's one of the best things about magic. And modern delivers. <laughs> High variance, <laughs> right? Like people can enjoy high variance. I, I think that makes a ton of sense. So as a player, do you set goals for yourself? Um, yes and no. I'm not a particularly goal-oriented person. And I actually, this year, I'm dealing with more expectation management than goals necessarily. Um, just to cruise over my last year, I'm not trying to highlight this as a braggadocious way, but I played like five tournaments and I won an open and top four to Grand Prix. But then I played the Mythic Championship and it was MC Oko and that was horrible. I lost every round. I had no interest in the format and just have to realize that like those are the swings with competitive magic. So this year, my goal was actually not to fly to play in any tournament that I paid for out of pocket not to chase that, not to chase the highs, to be aware of the lows and like accept success as it is accessible to me. Good news. You'll never have to fly again. Yeah, I'm doing a great job this year. <laughs> the whole world is doing a great job right now. Yeah. You know, speaking of the world ending, it seems like, and I think this is probably empirically true, because so many people are under quarantine internationally, there's just a flood of players on Arena and Magic Online. And something that I've been thinking about lately, especially while paying attention to tournament results, be it challenges or super qualifiers or prelims, is whether or not it's affecting the rate of innovation in formats. And I, I think you probably still play Magic more than I do. I, to be honest, I don't get to play it every day. Do you think people are still innovating in this digital-only space of the game? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's conventional wisdom or generally accepted as fact that magic online just moves faster than paper magic. There's some corollaries to this. For example, the biggest innovations tend to happen around pro tours. And that has to do with a couple factors. People highlight the fact that it's the best players that they game, but it's also hundreds of players taking a week off of work to do nothing but magic. And it helps mm-hmm. if they're the best players in the game, but it's also just more time than anybody spends on it. So you said, take somebody with an aptitude, give them time. Of, of course, the Pro Tour is going to see a lot of innovation. But Magic Online, like when people only play Magic Online, uh, you were asking like how I play Prowess all the time. Like, People don't play the same deck constantly. People try new things, and new things start working. I think in the last couple, three weeks, I've started seeing all of the blue-black decks are playing Ashiok Nightmare Muse. That wasn't yeah. true a month ago. And yeah. that card is just really good. Uh, and that's not the only innovation happening. The Heliod deck is becoming really focused on what it does, and they're all playing Gideon's Intervention now, and they all have Elspeth Conquers Death in the 75. They have decided to really lean in on the Arcanist Owl package, and that was something that was kind of contentious a little bit ago. And these are not the only decks that are changing. You know, I'm, I'm trying to do my part. Like I mentioned, I'm trying to uh, make Mono Red Prowess work in Pioneer and combination of aptitude, boredom, and time. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to move the needle, absolutely. Some of the good news about the moment we're in is that we just got a bunch of new cards introduced to us, and and we're recording this the Thursday before the full set is spoiled. So at this point, we've seen most of Ikoria cards. Is there anything that uh, stood out to you for either modern or pioneer versions of Mono Red? Um, I don't, I don't think I've seen anything that really looks like a Mono Red contender. This is a wedge set after all. There's a lot of multicolor stuff happening. I usually wait until other people try things or until we see the full spoiler before I really go to work. Periodically, there's a card that really gets me thinking. Uh, for this set, that card is Sprite Dragon. Uh, obviously, it's not a modern red card, but that's one I intend to work on in Pioneer Modern Standard. Uh, if I have enough free time, Legacy, you know, I'm going to play a lot of Sprite Dragons. You think Legacy even for that card? That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I have not enjoyed playing Legacy for some time, but Blue-Red Delver issuing a third color to play some basics is something that I've been interested in for a long time, and Dreadhorde Mm -hmm. Arcanist does not satisfy me. This card is way more my speed, because I think that this card is actually kind of close to Tarmogoyf, but it also pitches the Force of Will, which, uh, which I really like. I mean, definitely, that's one of my favorite cards in the set so far too. That's that's sweet to hear. I mean, the uh, anything that gets plus one plus one counters with uh, non-creature spells or instants and sorceries, sign me up. Oh yeah. <laughs> what do you think about the Trilands? You're the first person I get to ask about this. Uh, I just I can't believe they did Frontier Bivouac like that. <laughs> you know? I, I have literally registered Frontier Bivouac in Pioneer, and I was happy about it. You know, people are playing. Opulent Palace and Sultai, and yeah. I actually um, said in a broadcast one time, I really want Crumbling Necropolis and Pioneer. That, that's actually the thing that I'm miffed most about, is allied mana is still pretty bad in Pioneer, and these are enemy color wedge lands, but they're cool designs, they'll see a lot of play. They're really heavy-handed in their effectiveness, so it's like not surprising. 
it's a little hard for me to get too excited about something that is obviously good and does a very specific thing and that thing is enable you to cast spells you know right it's going to go in a deck that's a little bit slower and it plays at least three colors so it what that means is kind of a mid-range soup kind of thing you know i i don't get out of bed every morning to cast new misery reborn that i'm just not that person so try lands don't move the needle as much for me there but um i can see why these lands are exciting i think specifically mm-hmm. commander players should be most excited about these just fetchable try lands is going to be really nice for that format and just more lands with cycling so you keep your spells flowing but i don't know they're they're, they're cool i i I don't sound like I'm giving <laughs> yeah. them a too strong of an endorsement, but I'm, I'm not trying to like beat up on them or anything. They, they, they are cool. I mean, you, you acknowledge that they were powerful. You just said they're not exciting to me. And I think that's totally yeah. fair. It's not, you know, they're lands and um, they're not particularly splashy ones in thematically or anything. Mm-hmm. They're just super powerful. Yeah. So. They're, they're no fiery island. As yeah. a legacy player, are there any pre-modern cards that you would actually like to see reprinted either into Standard or into something like Modern Horizons 2 to introduce them to either versions of the Mono Red deck? Um, probably nothing that would be mm. good for any format. <laughs> um, I, I, there's, there's probably a number of listeners that specifically like the idea of some cards that are obviously powerful or obviously well-known or iconic, you know. There's the we want counterspell in modern crowd and the we want lightning bolt in pioneer crowd, and I'm against that. Mm-hmm. I want, like... <laughs> <laughs> Werebear and Pioneer. That's what I'm about. <laughs> give me give me standstill and standard. I love that. What about red elemental blast? Too strong? Oh yeah. yeah. I, I would go for Reb Reb in modern. Yeah. Give, give me red elemental blast in modern. You, you got me. <laughs> it's called Veil of Summer. I heard. Oh yeah, yeah. It's already there. <laughs> we already have it. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the last thing I would ask you is you you know, you have a different perspective than a lot of people that we get to talk to because you're involved heavily, you know, you're part part owner of a game store, like you said. What do you think is do you is the most popular format at your store generally before we kind of went into the 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 quarantine time? Uh, things are in flux right now. There's been a lot of migration to Pioneer. So right now I think it's Pioneer, but it's still so fresh, you know, we we had legacy players interested in pioneer modern players interested in pioneer the standard mm-hmm. players who've been playing for a few years and never sold anything who are really excited that their quarters are now five dollar bills you know totally there's a lot of reasons to move to pioneer right now but it's still so new that i mean it, it's the answer to the question i guess but um right. it, it's not obvious um what level of permanence that will have yeah was that what was that exercise like for you all at the store having to go through back stock to find new pioneer staples was that like a multi-week sorting exercise that everybody had to pitch in on so there's some stuff that had to come out of the storage locker but our sorting methodology is a lot different from most um i know when you go to a lot of game stores you're like yeah i, I need a copy of stifle it's from scourge we don't sort by sets we just sort by cards that are potentially good or desirable and cards that ended up seeing play in pioneer more or less fit that parameter 
Mm-hmm. And the the guy that does the most of our sorting, he was aware of where there was a pile of inverter of truths. So, you know, we, we were ready to go on that. You know, they, they weren't That's too right. hard for us to track down. Does being a store owner impact you as a player at all? I don't know, probably. Uh, it's difficult for me to see that one from the outside. I definitely don't care at all about card availability, but at the same time, I'm such a stubborn person that I only register Mountain and Steam Vents anyway. So that's realistically just not a problem for me. Um, it, it takes a lot of your time. I know that for some of my business partners, like getting engaged in magic as a game you play for fun is something that loses appeal. The more you get professionally involved, the more it feels like work. You know, the more that the people you engage with are people that you engage with as in a customer service role, it's a lot harder to face them just walking around in your street clothes you have to maintain that professionalism you feel that pressure there so you're a little bit more uncomfortable in those tournament environments but that's already true for commentary and i don't know i'm a little bit of a brash person but i kind of had that reputation before anyway so didn't really uh, appreciably um, impact my behavior once upon a time we had ross merriam on the show and something he said that has stuck with me for months now is that when your hobby becomes your job, it stops being your hobby because then it's just like, you're no longer doing this thing for one for fun. Cause you have to do it for work. And I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, in terms of enjoying the game as a hobby and a passion and engaging with it professionally, it is very important and fortunate for me that I both have very knowledgeable and very trustworthy business partners and our business is sustaining in a way where I don't have to be behind the counter at the store. You know, if, if you open up a business and you only have so much starting inventory or really limited on starting capital, that means you're going to have to be there five or more days a week, maybe working 80 hour weeks, a hundred hour weeks in some cases, like some absurd amount of work. You're not going to do that for fun. No way, not a chance. Nobody is capable of that. You know, you're, you're eating and you're sleeping and you're at work. That's it. And the few waking moments you have away from that, you're going, you want to do anything else. You will go home to your partner and you'll say, talk to me about anything that is not magic. Or don't talk Tom- at all. That's fine too. <laughs> what, what did Tom Nook try to sell you today? Tell me about that. All right, Ryan, where can people find you? What would you like to promote to our listeners who might not know you? Yeah, I mean, check me out on Twitter, at Ryan Overdrive. Assuming that live tournaments start happening at some point ever, and the SEG Tour is a part of that, you can find me broadcasting for the SEG Tour. Currently, I stream on my Twitch page, also at Ryan Overdrive, the cross-branding. You guys get it. Uh, But that's where you can find me right now. And then Lodestone. Yeah, Lodestone Coffee and Games or websites, just lodestonecoffeeandgames.com. We are in open beta for our online Magic single sale. So if you're in the United States, check us out. Um, Obviously, there's some stay-at-home orders in a lot of states. I guess not every state has that. So uh, Minnesota, we have it. Um, So our doors are not open right now, but our website is running. So any business you can send it away, we'd greatly appreciate that. Awesome. But we will go and check out your website, definitely. And if you're in the Twin Cities and you haven't checked out Lodestone, go check out Ryan's store. Um, you know, 
I will go check out the website. I'm always looking for a new, I, I don't go out and play paper that much. I stay in my house. That's my brand, <laughs> but I definitely buy singles still. So I will check out your site as well, Ryan. Dave, come on, let's do a, let's do a little road trip. It's only a eight-hour drive. You know what? I got some great friends in Minneapolis. I would love to come up there. Weirdly, the the number of times I have been to Minnesota, it has been only to go to St. Cloud hmm. for press checks for a project that I used to work on with a big printer out there. And so I would land in Minneapolis and go straight to St. Cloud, which is a bit of a drive, smaller city, but cool place nonetheless. All right, man. Thanks again. It was really nice chatting with you. Hopefully one day I'll get to bump your elbow and never <laughs> shake hands again. Yeah, well, if you ever make it out, we'll, we'll be there. Uh, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. And we'll put all the links to your online presence and Lodestone into the show notes for this episode as well. That wraps up this bonus episode of The Dive Down. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our show. So you get the latest episodes, bonus and otherwise, as soon as they come out. If you'd like to reach out to us directly, you can email thedivedown at gmail.com or tweet us at thedivedown, all one word. Ask us about modern or pioneer or mono red prowess, even though Ryan is probably the expert in those questions. If you'd like to support the show, you can check us out at patreon.com slash thedivedown. Or use our promo code at Manatraders to get 15% off your first three months of Manatraders online rental service. Promo code the dive down, all one word. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And of course, Ryan Overturf for being a guest on this episode. And until next week, stay inside and cast. Red spell.